0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station.
1: Inside Story on BFM 89.9.
2: Good evening, you're with Charmila Ganesan and Sharad Kutin. Tonight, the next in our 21st Century Malaysia series, what would our country look like if we really lived according to the principles of the Rukunagara? And that's what we'll be exploring in just a bit with constitutional lawyer, Datumale Malik Sarwa. In the meantime, tell us, do you find meaning and value in the Rukunagara? You can call double seven tweet us at BFM Radio, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 01878. 9 double eight double nine, that's our U-mobile number. This is Inside Story. It is 6.08 and uh, we couldn't do a show about the Rukunagara, I suppose, without first outlining what the Rukunagara says. Uh, Now, of course, if you went to a government school in Malaysia, you likely recited these every day or every week. Um, But for what it's worth, we are going to... um, read you the English translation of it, because I think it's important and interesting to understand exactly what it says. So the preamble to the, the the five principles themselves, what it says is achieving a more perfect union amongst the whole of our society, preserving a democratic way of life, creating a just society where the prosperity of the country can be enjoyed together in a fair and equitable way guaranteeing a liberal approach towards our traditional heritage that is rich and diverse, building a progressive society that will make use of science and modern technology. We, residents of Malaysia, pledge our united efforts to attain these ends guided by these following principles.
3: And this is probably the more familiar part, mm. the five principles. Again, be reading them in English. Belief in God, loyalty to king and country, supremacy of the
2: constitution, rule of law, courtesy and morality so these are as i said something that is drilled into most malaysians who um, grew up here went to school here Uh, but as to whether they are something we think about um, and as to whether we think whether our nation actually um, practices this fully um, in the way it's governed today i think that's where the conversation today is going to um, that's what we're going to try and unpack. Yeah.
3: So, you know, often when we talk about uh, a consensus on a national level, we talk about whether it aligns with the Constitution. I think the Constitution, constitution perhaps holds a stronger position uh, Uh, place in our imaginary or our imaginations about the country uh, more than the Rukun Nagara. Though the Rukun Nagara in some sense is more ubiquitous. I mean, just because as you rightly pointed out, Shamila, it's behind every book. But it's like almost the fact that it's everywhere makes it in some sense invisible. We kind of take it for granted. And maybe that's one of the challenges for those who have uh, strived to put the Rukun Nagara back as the center of our discussions about where
2: this country is going. So it is... Complicated, right? Because um, reading it out loud is one thing, but it I do wonder how to translate these into uh, ways that are practical for day-to-day, uh, well, on the individual level, how we treat each other, how we think of ourselves as citizens, but then on a more governing level how do these values translate um and you know to be honest as i was reading uh, particularly that preamble some of those aspects um the making use of science and modern technology the uh, liberal approach towards our traditional uh, traditional heritage these are not things that i've in um I, i'm a little ashamed to say these are not parts of the rukunagara that i even remembered or recalled until we were researching the story and so even whether everyone knows what it means to embody these values Values in real life is a big question.
3: Yeah, so the preamble has in many ways kind of disappeared I mean, it wasn't on the on the backs of books the exercise books it was those five very succinct uh you know expressions of principles that really were the ones that stood out the the insistence on also talking about the preamble because it elaborates on some of the principles and gives you a sense of where at least the founding uh you know figures in Malaysian society of Malaysia were thinking about what What would hold the federation together? Uh, What would keep uh, the diverse communities together if they had a single vision about the future? And that's how they constructed this particular,
2: I think, set of ideas and principles. So we will be um, discussing this for the rest of our show. What would our country look like if we lived according to the Rukunagara? Uh, we will be uh, speaking after this with constitutional lawyer, Dato Male Imtia Sarwar. But in the meantime, we'd like to hear from you as well. Do you find meaning and value in the Rukunagara? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note or WhatsApp, 18 Tweet us at BFM Radio.
1: Because freedom matters. BFM 89.9.
2: It is 6.14. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Sharad. And we're talking about what our country would look like if we really lived according to the principles of the Rukunagara. Let us know, do you find meaning and value in the Rukunagara? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, tweet us at BFM Radio, uh, send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018 uh, 789 Joining us now on the line is constitutional lawyer Datuk Male Imtiaz Sarwar. Imtiaz, it's always good to have you with
4: us. Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: So, growing up with the rukunegara printed at the back of our exercise books or our textbooks, most of us are familiar with the rukunegara, but perhaps not as much with its origins. So, could you tell us how it first came into being?
4: Sure. Um, it, it came came into uh, being just after May thirteenth, uh, sixty nine. So, obviously, the country was reeling from that the National Consultative Council thought that it would be a good idea to put together a set of uh, ideals, uh, sort of uh, to act like a national philosophy. Uh, And it was uh, brought into uh, existence on the 31st of August, 1970, uh, the 13th anniversary. Um, And the idea here was to sort of give people something to hold on to uh, and to believe that it was possible for the country to unite and to heal uh, from the ruptures or you know that, that had happened during May 13th.
3: Now, having given us that context, right, the aftermath of May 13th, <laughs> how, how much can we say or attribute uh, to the Rukun Nagara to establish peace and uh, you know ease restlessness in the country?
4: Yeah, well, I think you've got to look at that in two ways. One, I think, as an immediate means of trying to uh, quieten the, the the uncertainties, the the anxieties that that followed May thirteenth, I think it worked to an extent because people were just quite uh, eager to to sort of move on. But then, on the second part, I'm not sure whether it ever went um, deeper than than the surface. So, you know, holistically, it seemed to be okay. But I think it's also because the country, the economy was growing, and other things were, were were happening, and and people were motivated by that, you know, that increasing wealth that we saw. So I'm not entirely sure I can say that it had, you know, it, it its roots went deep into into the national psyche. But yeah, in the in the immediate period, I think it did do some good.
3: It is often said of of things that are quite similar, like the Panchasila in Indonesia, that, you know, these um, this articulation of values and principles was much more for the leadership of the country, for the administrative uh, uh, workers, than for the population at large. I mean, in terms of balance, who do you think was targeted and who most uh, kind of absorbed these uh, values?
4: Yeah, I, I think I think you're right, because. When you look at it, um, the people who had no choice but to pay attention to it were people in, in the administration because this was an administration effort. Um, and then, yeah, okay, it was it was brought into the schools um, and people were told that these these were national values. But the man on the street, I think, had bigger and more pressing concerns and essentially wanted this to be left alone to do what he or she uh, had to, to survive and, and to prosper. So I, I think you're right. It was meant to be um, a statement to... Um, the powers that be that look, this is how we think everything should happen, and this is how we think um the country should move forward. Uh and 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 don't um um deviate from this by you know focusing on on uh, divisive matters and 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 so on.
2: So that's it then, what sort of society and country did the founding fathers envision uh when it came to the formulation of the Rukunagara?
4: Yeah, so you know, you had the situation where in '57 we had a constitution that that said what it said, you know, and I think the main thing there was that everybody was equal before the law and you know had the equal protection of the law. Um, yes, then then there was a, a tweaking of it after '69 when you know we had the NEP come in, uh, but you know, even then the idea was that it would be um, something that would not last, uh, that would not go the distance. It would it would have a sunset within 20 years. And, you know, people talk about that all the time, Tunis smiles idea of what the country was going to be. And I think the intention was to never deviate from this idea that we were all part of the same country and that we had all common interests. But at the same time, we had to uh, sort of recognize and acknowledge that without addressing the demographics issue, uh, poverty, and to some extent, the the racial imbalance in in economic terms, um, that that vision might be a problem. So I think I can say that the idea, at least as 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 reflected by the Rukun Negara, was that we would have an inclusive um, a society in which, as um, Sultan Azrin once said, you know, everyone had their place in the sun. Um, but somewhere along the way, I think one objective, the objective of you know addressing that so-called uh, economic disparity, uh, became the focus, and and we sort of lost sight of 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 the other part of it, it which is general. Um, uh, well-being for everybody without without regard to race or religion.
3: Now, the preamble is often overlooked, and, but it's so important because it does give context and insights into what the Rukun aims to achieve. Have we lost something in not emphasizing the uh, preamble?
4: I think so. I mean, I was just looking at it again just now, and I saw that the preamble has something um, uh, one of the one of the points is guaranteeing a liberal approach towards our traditional heritage that is rich and diverse. I mean, the word liberal is certainly not a very uh, good word, apparently, in in some quarters. I'm just thinking of the fatwa against sisters in Islam about liberal and pluralist thought. So yeah, uh, somewhere along the way, we seem to have uh, forgotten that the preamble was important in understand in helping us understand what exactly these five pillars were aimed at achieving. Um, an inclusive society where, you know, democracy would flourish, where justice and prosperity were the main uh, concerns, uh, that there'd be fair and equitable distribution of um, opportunities. Um, but unfortunately, I guess the focus has always been on the five pillars because it says belief in God, loyalty to king and country, uh, amongst other things. And and those things seem to feature quite a lot in our uh, political landscape, which which unfortunately is still very much... Uh, focused on race and religion.
2: Now, if we go to the the more famous, as it were, five lines of the Rukunagara, the five principles themselves, um, we may know them, but I'm not sure how many of us actually try to unpack what they mean, and uh, more specifically, how they relate to us. So, how can these principles actually be applied in a practical, individual sense?
4: Well. Uh- I mean I think there's there's a need to um re-educate people about these principles because unfortunately the 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 public sphere is so overwhelmed with ideologues uh, with you know very un how do you say unfounded ideas about how things should be um uh, reinterpretations of the Constitution reinterpretations of you know basic ideas like social contract to suit a political outcome but to, to a large extent that's been allowed to happen because you know, We have to admit that the education system hasn't been kept at at the level it should have been. And and it's unfortunately not producing the kind of critical thinking that we need. Uh, There's been no emphasis on civic um, education or or the importance of the Constitution, for example. So if you don't have all of these things in play, then this will just remain um, a piece of paper, you know, which declares what it does, um, which won't have any traction in how we progress. So to make it real, I think we have to start tackling very difficult issues um, at starting with the education system, um, looking again at whether or not we need to start uh, revising uh, our racial uh, religious approach to things, not to say that these things are not important, but the prominence given to that, um, the sacrifice that has to be made in order to accommodate that, uh, these are things that I think we need to look at. Um, but you know, a simple answer would be, let's bring it back to the schools um, and and not just say this is what you have to pledge every day, but explain it. Explain what the supremacy of the constitution means. Explain what how important the constitution is to the whole country and, and how everything has its place under the constitution, be it religion or race, and how everything has to measure up against that constitution.
2: Yeah. We have a message from a listener, Lee, who is saying uh, we should re- leave religion out of the Rukunagara, which actually leads me to um, my next question. Um, what if someone feels that not every aspect of the Rukunagara applies to them or their own values?
4: Yeah, I think we have to understand that um, when when the Rukunagara says, for example, uh, belief in God, um, it's meant to be um, uh, an inclusive uh, belief. That means your own idea of belief and conscience, Uh, not just one idea uh, or, or one particular form of religion. Um, and uh, loyalty to king and country—it it just means that we have to we have to embrace the idea that we live in a in a monarchy, a constitutional monarchy. But then very quickly under that, you have supremacy of the constitution, rule of law. So um, I, you know, to say that we should leave religion out of it, I can understand because the public sphere that the Supreme Court has previous Supreme Court has recognised that the public sphere is meant to be secular; it's meant to be neutral. The personal sphere is where religion comes in. And in in the case of Islam, there's provision in the constitution for the enacting of laws for the administration of Islam, unlike other other, um, religions. So yes, I I, I see the sense in saying we should keep religion out of things, uh, not because I I decry religion, but because it it sort of adds ambiguity or complexity uh, to administrative decision making. You don't want people to be making decisions based on their own moral sense. You want them to make decisions based on what the law is and what the relevant criteria are. Y- y- you know, what I mean so so I can I can see the sense in it. I I'm not entirely sure how it should be approached because it's extremely uh, difficult to to talk about that subject, as as unfortunately I've had to find out the hard way in you know many, many of the things I've done over the years. Uh, but yes, definitely. I think we have to we have to come back to this idea that a neutral space is important for any and every religion to flourish and for the country to prosper. Neutrality is is essential, an honest broker system.
3: Imtiaz, is it possible for us to pick and choose, cherry pick as it were, the Rukuns that we like and the Rukuns we don't?
4: Uh, no, it, 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 we can't. But I, I would say that when we look at the Rukunagara, given that the Inukunagara itself emphasizes the supremacy of the Constitution. I think we can go back to what it is the Constitution says. And the Constitution says you have a freedom of religion, um, which um, has been understood to mean both religion in the formal sense and, and, and freedom of conscience. Uh, it also says that, you know, you have um, a right not to be discriminated against. Um, so when you look at it through the lens of the Constitution, then what the five pillars say is essentially, you know, let's, let's, um, harken back to what the constitutional vision is. Uh, and that's why some people say it should in fact be looked at as some sort of preambular statement to how the constitution is, although that's that's anachronistic because the constitution came first. But um, uh, I, I don't think it's cherry-picking to say that, look, yes, I can see the sense of it as a national uh, philosophy, but I don't have a problem with it because within that national philosophy, I have my freedoms. So, So that's how I see it.
2: So we have um, about two minutes left. Would our society and country have experienced a different trajectory had we been more conscious about applying the Rukunegara philosophies in a more meaningful way?
4: I think so. I'd like to think so, and I still think it's possible. Um, I don't know whether that's you know uh, <laughs> um, just uh, blind hope, but I think it's very possible because you know until until the eighties, late eighties, if you if you recall. Um, and it's very interesting to see the the dynamic that that, that was in play between the Mahdi government and and at that time the Islamic opposition. And you know every time the Islamic opposition brought up an issue of Islam, and how the other side was not uh, uh, you know practicing religion in the right way or, or saying the right things, you'd have the Mahdi government say, well, it's a it, we have a neutral space, um, and it's it's in in one way or the other, it's a secular space, so we don't have to worry about that. You know, in fact, Saleh Abbas. One of the charges against him was that he had spoken in favour of inculcating Islamic values into the Malaysian common law, and that was said to to be problematic because it would give rise to consternation amongst um, multiracial Malaysia uh, Malaysians. So, so that was that was okay, and I think you know it, it, that was a place for everything. But then somewhere along the way, um, uh, for whatever reason, the administration felt they needed to now um, bolster their political uh, standing. And in order to do that, they resorted to race and religion. And so you see a a decline happening from the late 80s into um, the first part of of 2000. In fact, you know, when Mahadeh says uh, we're an Islamic state, I mean, it's a clever thing to say because in in Malay, it's um, um, Nagara uh, uh, Islam. And it's nothing particularly problematic with that. But when you say it in English, an Islamic state is a state that is seen to be um, um, underwritten by the principles of Islam. But then we have constitutional supremacy here. So you you have ideas like that, Katunan Layu, etc., beginning to get in the way of um, things. And as the political movement uh, becomes stronger based on that, there's, there's a tendency to use that kind of thing much more. And then the ideologues emerge. And then they start shouting louder than everyone else. And then whoever shouts loudest um, you know, holds sway. And you see that happening right now. With the way people uh, say, "Oh, look at this! Is look at what's happening in the courts. Look at what has, what's happening where this challenge to this law is being made. How can they do that? The sanctity of Islam is being undermined." Actually, it's not. It's just about the constitution, for example. So, um, if you ask me, um, the, the 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 we we went astray because that became something that was uh, more important at that time. The political incumbency of some. Um, and in order to get away from it, we, I think we have to go back to empowering people, uh, telling them that, look, you can stand on your own feet. You can you know critically think of things through. You won't be left behind. There will be systems to take care of things, but we have to get on and, and we can't be stopping each other uh, by, by, by doing this thing that we've been doing for the last 20 years.
2: Imtia, Sorry, we do to, a bit, but yeah. No, no, not at all. But we do need to take a break for the news. Um, are you okay to uh, continue on with us after? Sure,
5: yeah.
2: All right. So we'll continue our conversation on the Rukun with constitutional lawyer Dato Male Imtiaz Sarwar after this. In the meantime, keep your thoughts coming. Do you find meaning and value in the Rukun Nagara? We'll be back in a bit. Keep it here. BFM 89.9.
1: Break from mediocrity. BFM 89.9.
2: It is 6.39. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Jarad. And we've been talking about the Rukunagara and what our country might look like if we actually lived according to those principles. Uh, we'd like to hear from you as well. Do you find meaning and value in the Rukunagara? You can call us, you can send us a voice note, you can WhatsApp us, you can tweet us. We are continuing our conversation with constitutional lawyer Datuk Male Imtia Saru on this. Uh, so Imtiaz, before the break, um, we were having, I suppose, in some ways, uh, some philosophical conversations around the Rukunagara. But if we look at how our country has developed, I'm curious, has the Rukunagara helped chart a cause for the country's development policies?
4: Well, I think on the, on the surface, yes. I mean, you, you, you have, I, I'm saying this with all respect, but lip service is paid to these notions of, uh, to these notions of uh, inclusiveness and uh, multiracialism and so on. and And that seems to 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 sort of inform the policy setting. But the reality on the ground is a bit different because the reality is dictated by political realities. And so you have this sort of um, uh, almost like disconnect between the lofty aspirations on the one hand and the and the implementation of policies on the ground. So that that's how I see it. And um, it's it's problematic.
3: MT, as you know, we talk a lot about uh, rising conservatism, the question of religion in in, in the public sphere uh, as being one of the biggest challenges for the country. But isn't federalism and the and the future of the federation, how it holds together, also one of the uh, one of Malaysia's greatest challenges at this point in time? And I wonder if the Rukun Nagara speaks to that particular issue.
4: Well, uh, yes, I, I mean, there are two, two points there. One is, yes, I agree with you that federalism is something that, that we need to, to pay close attention to. Um, and it, it on, it's not just about um, uh, the Islamic issues, although that, that does feature very prominently in, in this sort of discussion. Um, and, you know, you would have seen that there have been several cases in the courts recently um, with, you know, with controversies surrounding them where challenges have been made to uh, some of the state laws on on Islamic criminal law. Um, And that's really uh, about federalism because we have a constitution that that draws the boundaries between federal legislative power and state legislative power quite clearly. And um, over the last uh, 20 years, what we've seen is uh, a tendency to um, uh, uh, make law at the state by calling it an Islamic law regardless of the fact that it might be impinging on matters within the federal uh, uh, system. So that that in a way is actually um, a challenge to federalism in in, in many ways um, We also see it in other in other other situations um, where you know for political reasons you need support from a particular state and that state may have certain vested interests in certain things and you see negotiations happening. Now this isn't unique to us. it happens all over the place. Um, but the point is that if you don't have, um, if you're not vigilant to the implications of these sorts of maneuvering, um, we may be set down a path that we may not be able to, to recover from. So while I fully agree with the sentiment underlying the, you know, the StraWak and Sabah movement um, to get MA63, uh, the spirit of MA63 put in place, uh, I can see why that's important. At the same time, we have to, we also have to pay Attention to the federal arrangement and how it is that these states came into the federation in the first place, and what the separation of powers uh, entails. So yes, I agree with you, uh, Sharat, that, that federalism is very very important, and and we can't afford to to take our eye off it because if if that goes, then you have essentially a disintegration of the country. Now, the second part of it is yes, the the Rukun does feed into this because you know it talks about uh, the whole of Malaysian society, and that's reiterated when Malaysia entered, um, uh, sorry, when, when East Malaysia, sorry, Sal, Sarawak entered Malaysia. And if you look at the procl- proclamation of Malaysia, it does hark back to back to some of these ideas. Um, and, you know, it does talk about the supremacy of the Constitution, which, as I said, um, federalism does play a central uh, role in. And, and in fact, the federal court has recognized at a number of occasions that federalism is very much part of the um, uh, key features of the Constitution. So yes, yes, it's a it's a very important aspect.
2: Now, are there significant moments or events in our country that you would identify as being a complete departure from what was intended with the Rukunagara?
4: Yeah, I I think so. And I, I I come back to what I was saying earlier. I mean, the eighty-eight attack on the judiciary, I think, was was directly at um you know in in defiance of the Rukunagara, because you had a situation where the executive actually interfered with the workings of the judiciary for its own ends. Uh, and we, we, we've seen the fallout from that um, um, a judiciary that was cowed. you had a, a parliament that in effect had suborned the judiciary to it. and you know it, it was only in the late in 2012 or 2013, I can't remember the date exactly when the federal court finally said, okay, this amendment that sought to uh, put the judiciary under the power of the executive. Um, was uh, was uh, against the basic structure of the constitution, and we can't allow that to happen. And since that decision, we've seen the court um, um, uh, on various occasions reiterate and reinforce that that point that the supremacy of the constitution protects the independence of the judiciary, and the judiciary is essential to check and balance, and 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 the separation of powers has to be um, respected. So yeah, the the attack on the judiciary in '88 was in many ways, uh, a critical moment for us uh, that and following that, the enacting of all these laws that um, suppressed um, the freedom of expression or, or democratic uh, efforts uh, from association to other things, um, which in, in many ways then only allowed the chosen few to speak. And in that way, positioned ideologues to uh, tamper with the way we we do things and to hold sway in a way that was never intended. Um, uh, by the Rukunagara, you know, when you look at the preamble to it, uh, it says, you know, achieving a more perfect unity amongst the whole of society, uh, uh, creating a just society that can be enjoyed together in a fair and equitable manner. But what we saw post-88, you know, until about 2008, when we had that sea change happening at the state level, um, we saw this, this whole construct being undermined by a, a political system that was intent on keeping incumbents in office uh, notwithstanding the the impact on society so I, I think those are very clear examples of where we we, we where things changed
3: Imtiaz, I asked this uh, of you as, not just as a lawyer but also somebody who holds the arts as uh, as dear to him so how do we steer our way back to the guidelines of the newundgara
4: yeah it's gonna it's not gonna be easy I think but I think the government, the current government seems to be headed in the direction. I mean, it it needs um, a constant messaging from the federal government that it holds um, freedom such as this important, that it holds um, guarantees of equality as important, that it recognizes that when people are um, affected in a way that they should not be, when their constitutional rights are violated, it recognizes a need that that be um, remedied. We need this messaging very, very urgently because that is, I think, something that uh, people on the ground would appreciate hearing. And then, of course, it has to be followed through with action. So it's just not rhetoric. So, yes, the the, the economy is important. People need to feel that they, they have a, a chance at, you know, paying their bills and so on, getting jobs and et cetera. All that's very important. Uh, business has to move. But at the same time, uh, our young need to feel that they actually have a place in the society and and funnily enough, I, I speak now across the board, across all uh, uh, racial and religious boundaries, and I think that this is a problem that's affecting all young, not just the non-Malays or the non-Muslims, it's affecting everybody because in one way or the other, people are feeling disenfranchised and that's because they feel the government is not looking out for them anymore. And if that happens, then where do they turn to? And if you look at it in that sense, then you can understand why certain um, trends are developing as we as we see them happening and why people are making the kind of electoral choices that they are. So somehow we need to, we need the government, the government needs to make people understand that the old days are gone. Uh, this doesn't mean that it's open season on things that are problematic and that, that has to happen slowly. I, I get it, change has to happen slowly. But at the same time, people need to be made to feel that it's real. It's no longer just a question of, um, saying things that will get you voted in at the next election. And difficult decisions have to be made.
2: Imtiaz, thanks for speaking with us today.
4: Sure. I mean, thank you for having me.
2: That was constitutional lawyer, Dato Malik Imtiaz Sarwar, uh, speaking to us about what the country could look like if we actually lived according to the principles of the Rukunegara. Uh, let us know. Uh, share your thoughts on this with us. Do you find meaning and value in the Rukunagara? You can call 777 Send us um, a voice note or WhatsApp at 18 789 Tweet us at BFM Radio.
1: Brave. Free. Malaysia. BFM. 89.9. The Business Station.
2: It is 6.51. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Sharad. And it is the eve of Merdeka. So we are continuing on with uh, various stories and discussions around the notion of Merdeka and particularly, I think, ways in which we want to imagine the country to be. Uh, We've been talking about today what Malaysia would look like if we lived according to the Rukun Negara. We'd like to hear from you as well. Do you find meaning and value in the principles? You can call us, double seven double three two nine hundred. send us a voice note or WhatsApp, 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Let's start with a voice note that's come in. This is from Firdaus. Personally, I think Rukun Negara is where it brings us all together as
3: one, and definitely give us the value of being the citizen of Malaysia and on top of that is where we anchor to a single principles or principles for that define who we are as the citizen of Malaysia the question is, how might every one of us embrace the rukun negara that can bring us to be a better Malaysian and subsequently allow us to make a Malaysia to be a better country or better place for us to live
2: with? Ferdas, thank you for that. Um, I mean, I think it's I think this notion of anchoring ourselves to something is is quite lovely, and. You know, looking at the principles and the ideals themselves, I don't see I don't see very many uh, points at which I would push back or argue, especially if I look at it from the perspective that our guest um, Malik Imtia earlier was talking about as a set of um, philosophies or ideals rather than a definitive, well, this is what you must do. Um, but I do think how can we apply that is where it gets a little tricky.
3: Yeah, so there the, are all these different impulses I think built into the into the Nagar itself. It's a, it's a kind of horizon. It's something we aspire to, but like all horizons, the more you uh, approach it. It retreats, right? It's it's about finding higher and higher order uh, meanings in these set of principles. But at the same time, you know, uh, it's a very I think it's a practical sense of how do we hold this nation together, right? Uh, Rather than and so rather than just focusing on how we fail to live up to the principles of Nukumagara, it's important to note that because we have this shared set of values, that we can, in fact, even have a conversation about where we go and how do we correct course uh, in order to achieve the kind of Malaysia that we want to.
2: Well, actually, speaking of values, we have Jeffrey saying... uh when talking about the Rukunagara, let it be an inclusive instead uh, instead let it be an inclusive instead of a divided society to bring about the sense of belonging to the country that they were born and raised in. Only then will it be meaningful and it won't just be taught in schools, but it'll also be affirmed and practiced right from home, spreading to each and everyone in the society as one identity. Otherwise it's just reciting another meaningless piece of political principles.
3: Yeah, so the the fear that this becomes something we do, you know, it's kind of lip service to these ideals, but we don't actually live it, is something uh, that I think is an inherent danger in any principles, including religious ones, right? Because there are always people who claim, uh, you know, that they are so-and-so, but then when you when you talk about how they actually live their lives, mm. you can say, well, you don't live up to that, right? But the, but that is the essential, I think, uh, dynamic between the principles
2: and realities, that we're always in a, is a kind of creative tension between these two things. So you know what's interesting about Jeffrey's message also is that distinction between not just taught in schools, but also affirmed and practiced at home. Uh, Because um, I see where you're coming from, Jeffrey, that it's one thing to be made to recite something every day at school. But if you don't see any um, depiction or or, or value given to that at home, uh, even in how your parents might behave or how they talk about other people, other members of the community, then there is a sort of uh, it becomes banal. It just becomes words that don't really mean anything or apply in any way. I do think, though,
3: there is a danger in sort of expecting the Rukun Nagara to... Uh, be framed what, on the wall in the house. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, and also, you know, be there in every aspect of our lives. Yeah. I mean, it's really about the nation and writ large, right? And so maybe some... Um, we place some limits on where, where we think this is going to be important and salient. Uh, probably enough, uh, you know, rather than, yeah, I mean, you know, in my home, I am, in fact, the God.
2: Well, okay. All right. <laughs> Perhaps well, not quite I the I nobody because I live alone. <laughs> so I was thinking about actually something like kesupanan and Kasusila'an. And how the way you talk about other communities, for instance, your neighbors, um, people who are different from you. Um, and if you want your child to live those ideals, then that's something you have to do by example as well. Yeah, it's interesting that you should read
3: out uh, the version in Malay, right? Because we had Fazli who says, I want... I just want to say that the Rukun Nagara sounds more impressive in Barcelona, Malaysia than in English. Uh, though I would say Fazli, that I think the power of the Rukun Nagara is that in fact it can be translated across all the languages that are spoken in Malaysia, not just Barcelona Malaysia, not just English, but you know all the native languages into Siamese, into you know Tamil, whatever people wherever they're speaking it because then it becomes truly
2: something Malaysian. I love that actually, um, but I will say that until very recently, I even actually now I can't recite from memory the version in the translation in English, because obviously it was the BM version that I've had to you know say growing up. But because it was crafted in BM, there's a musicality and a, a poetic sense, you know, the re- repetition of the K's and uh, the way in which the syllables of each principle echo each other, that I think makes it very easy to remember and, and in fact to recite.
3: Yeah, that's something that I didn't notice. But now that you say it, I, I guess uh, I can see where you're coming from. But uh, I must admit that, you know, I, I think the idea, right, so it doesn't matter that it's in Malay or in no, English. No, you're right. right.
2: It shouldn't matter. It's the spirit of it yes, that's important. Yes. And that needs to be universal in a sense. We have other voice notes that have come in. Let's see. We have this from Balin.
1: Good evening. I'm really agree that uh, Rukunagara have a great value and it's playing an important role. But what I'm thinking is, we should start from ourselves first. For example, we should teach our kids to respect other religions. And if they ask any question about other races or religion, we should teach them and educate them. I think uh, we should mould... mold a very healthy generation to change the country country's future for a better nation thank you
2: balan thank you for that i mean i i certainly agree that there, you know that's a great thing to teach your children i will extend balan's point though to something that um Imtia said earlier right um when he was talking about moments in our history where the um where, you know, things have sort of deviated from the principles of the Rukunagara. And I wonder whether there is also space for those kinds of conversations to be had at home when uh, when you read the newspapers and then to have discussions with kids, age appropriately, of course, about what they mean in a larger context of the country.
3: Yeah, that's putting a lot on parents, So I, mean, I mean, I think <laughs> it, it is. It, it is. is, but. But yes, uh, when you can make reference to, uh, I think, the Constitution at the well, dinner table. perhaps don't make reference to the
2: Constitution. <laughs> but, perhaps just open up a question about how do you feel when someone gets arrested for something they say?
3: Yeah, you know... Um, I think that what would be interesting to see is if the uh, the present government or the you know the ministry can uh, put this into the curriculum. How they would do it, not as something dead and sort of be read off as mm. a set of uh, of uh, edicts, right? But more like a conversation. How do we teach these values, framed as conversations, so that they are alive, so that they do in fact uh, consist of people
2: viewing or interpreting these uh, words in their own uh, fashion. Keep those thoughts coming. We will continue the conversation after this. Do you find meaning and value in the Rukun Nagara? You can call us, you can send us a voice note, you can WhatsApp us, you can tweet us. Keep it here, BFM 89.9.
1: Building Future Malaysia, BFM 89.9, The Business Station.
2: It is 7.08. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Sharad. It is the eve of Merdeka. um, And so we are talking about what Malaysia would look like if we lived according to the Rukunagara. Uh, We'd like to hear from you. Do you find meaning and value in the Rukunagara? You can call 777 <clears throat> Send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018 789 8899. Tweet us at PFM Radio. Let's see, I, we have some voice notes. Let's start with, well, actually, let's start with this from Rajkumar because uh, he's responding to something Sherad said before the break.
5: Hi, guys. Lamat Um I actually don't quite agree with what Sherad said. I think that um, Druko Nagara, while it's uh, important to to maintain the spirit of the rukunegara i think it still should be in bahasa because then the essence of uh, the rukunegara will be there and also there will be a common language across all different cultures and different languages because you know just like in malaysia we can communicate with uh, let's say an auntie who can't speak english or a hawker or you know someone else we can all speak in bahasa to each other and so it's important for us to have that uh, single cohesive language that can be uh, lingua franca that that will be used to unite everyone. So I really believe Bahasa Malaysia is important and the Rukunagara should be in Bahasa and everyone should learn it and uh, even taught in schools and uh, someone mentioned about teaching children. And uh, yeah, so these are my thoughts. No hard feelings. <laughs>
3: Thank you for that, Rajkumar Sharad. No hard feelings, Rajkumar. I mean, I I think we welcome a debate. I mean, I think that's a basic point. Uh, and I think you you make some interesting points about the question of language and uh, a common language, and you know, in terms of articulating, say, a, a common vision. But I, uh, but maybe personally, I am also somebody who believes that uh, for for ideas to really uh, be absorbed, they need to be done in the languages that people uh, f- uh, are, have as their expressive language, meaning the language they use daily or and habitually. they think in. They think mm. in, they use at home, right? And so, uh, yes, the national language is there, but not all of us use it or have it as our expressive language. So you and me, Shamila, I would guess we're both English speakers. We're English-speaking Malaysians mm. all across the, this uh, federation uh, from tip to toe. Uh, you people speaking English for whom the language that best captures their sense of the world is English. And so you need to find some points of translation to make sure that we're all on board. And sometimes there's some gaps and we can talk through those gaps, I think.
2: So just to be clear, also, I mean, I Correct me if I'm wrong, Sharad. I don't think you're advocating for not using the BM version. Um, No, not at all. I mean, I'm just saying that, you know. That the translations are important.
3: Yeah. And you see this in any kind of uh, philosophy that's gone around the world, right, is its ability to translate across different languages.
2: No. And and I think also, um, I do love the sentiment, Rajkumar, about us being united through a language. I, I do think that where possible, it's important for us to be able to uh, understand and speak BM. But I think just if, it, if for nothing else but for practical reasons, uh, the Rukunagara should be available in as many languages as people might speak in Malaysia. We have, let's see, uh, we have this from Arif as well.
0: Rukunagara in my opinion, uh, is a philosophy set by the administrator for those living in the country. Everyone in Malaysia, uh, without looking at religion or race, should aspire to have a belief at the rukun negara. So, if everyone uh, have this kind of foundation of philosophy, so Malaysian, uh, we 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 have a prosperous country.
2: Arif, thank you for that. Um, I mean, I. I, I think I like this idea of Rukunagara Nagara being um, a foundation. In fact, that's what it was intended to do. Yeah, but
3: not in, the found, in a foundation in the sense of, say, what your re- personal religion might yes. be, right? So you can have your beliefs. This is not, as I understand it, an attempt to displace the personal religious or you know philosophical beliefs of individuals. It's about saying that as a nation, there's a consensus on these principles guiding uh, the way we interact as each o- with each other as individuals, as communities, but also how the state is going to be administered. The state is going to keep very clearly this line. So, say, for instance, on the question of a liberal interpretation with regard to traditional cultures, that's what the state has to be uh, kind of aligned with, um, you know, regardless of what the individuals within the, st- in, within the
2: nation uh, believe. We have a number of people uh, dissenting, perhaps. Um, let's see. We have not not quite dissenting, but questioning whether... There is still meaning to be found in the Rukunagara. So Sharin, for instance, um starts off by saying, We would be like Japan or Norway if we lived according to the Rukunagara, definitely not Singapore. The Rukunagara seems to have no meaning these days. We were struck by uh, we are struck with racial stereotypes. Our early education was also focused more on academics. Amar, meanwhile, says used to be a school prefect, recited the Rukunagara every Monday morning with pride. No more now. The NEP, the privileges of the majority, the three R's, lost hopes. I'm, I'm encouraging my children to migrate."
3: Yeah, well, you know, I mean, wherever, whichever country I guess your children migrate to, they're going to have to deal with that nation, the realities, the aspirations of that nation, but also the realities on the ground. I mean, I think, you know, we talked about this yesterday, you know, when a lot of people aspire to go to countries themselves with huge problems around race and religion and have problems about majority communities versus minority communities. This is not something uniquely Malaysian, and so uh, the challenges remain, I think, regardless
2: where you put your feet down. I think what's interesting to me about both Sharon and Amar, though, is this notion of perhaps having lost faith in the no, in the principles uh, within the Ruko Nagara and how recent events perhaps and or even the direction that they see the country, the education system heading in being the cause of that loss of faith.
3: Yeah, that's be true, you know, and the the but then the question remains: How do nations develop over time? Right. So if mm. you were living in a country where there was an upsurge in populism, and you've had a Trump-like character, and Trump Trump-like characters have you know continued to emerge across the they world. They pop up everywhere. Everywhere, right? And so people in those countries might be dismayed, but then you remember that you can still struggle. And this is the promise of democracy: that you can put somebody in power, but they can also be removed from power, and that you can. Call And you can, through the institutions, if they're resilient enough, like your judiciary and so on, you can find a path back to what you believe was the original intention in. In, in creating that nation.
2: And what we're talking about today is whether some of that uh, intention, that meaning could be found in the Rukun Nagara. We'd like to hear from you. Do you find meaning and value in the principles of the Rukun? You can call 777 900 Send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. We'll be back after this to continue the conversation. So keep it here. BFM 89.9.
1: Bruce Freddie Morrissey, BFM 89.9.
2: It's 717. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Sharad. We are asking you, do you find meaning and value in the Rukunagara? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018 789 8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. So, um, we have a voice note, but I did want to sort of address a few messages that have come in all circling a very similar point um, to do with the first principle of the Rukanagara, right? The Kepercayaan Kepada Tuhan. So, Uh, TIDJ, let's see, TIDJ, Shamil, LSH, all pointing out that if you were someone who uh, perhaps didn't believe in God or um, believed in a different idea of what faith or spirituality might mean, that perhaps something like the Rukun wouldn't resonate with you. And if you missed the earlier part of the conversation, in fact, we did discuss um, not just that first principle, but if perhaps there were values that you didn't identify with, how would the rukun apply to you with our guest earlier, Malik Imtiaz Sarwar? And he had some interesting answers to give, primarily to do with not looking at it as a um, directive, but rather as a set of uh, larger principles or ideals.
3: Yeah, and the constitution and its guarantee for yes. religious freedom. And I, you know, as somebody who considers himself an atheist, I don't, uh, I don't find it objectionable. In fact, I just think of this uh, particular rukun as referring to this the, the more general idea of uh, having... Having higher order values, right? And so uh, there are countries where something like this might have been kind of written up as you have to believe or, uh, in fact, uh, you know, um, associate with the five given, like, as Indonesia had during the New Order, which is, you know, the five stated religions. And then there were a whole range of religions, uh, especially traditional religionists, who weren't even recognized by the Indonesian state. And this is not true of Malaysia, you know. And because we also know that there are many people who consider themselves religious, who don't have God as a center of that religious belief or that spiritual belief. And so that diversity, I think, is in fact respected in Malaysia, you know, and you don't need something. And so to become unhappy with this particular Rukun, I think, is missing the point.
2: We do have a caller on the line. Good evening, Paul. What are your thoughts? Good evening, buddies. Uh, Happy Merdeka
1: as it approaches. Same to Um, you. No, I just want to run a parallel. Um, The background I'm coming from is this: um, that I I know a lot of people who have migrated, intended to left, packed up, lock, stock, and barrel, and they've come back and they've had problems readjusting to come when when they return to Malaysia. You know, children have grown overseas. You know, different. So it's a reverse migration, and the reason being. I, I feel, in most of them, and I think a lot of us, it applies to a lot of us, is that we think that the nation is the problem. I, you know, Many people think that the nation is the problem, the constitution is the problem, the rules are the problem, so let's run away to another workplace, another living place. They run away and they find the same thing, just like you all mentioned. They find the same problem, and then many want to come back, many can't come back, You know, and there are problems. The reason is... When you move, where, where does the problem reside? Is it you the problem or is it the nation the problem? So when you move to a new company for a job or you move to a new company to reside and grow, um, if you're going to take your same values, if you're going to take your same prejudices, if you're going to take your whole value system with you, problem, the problem will arise in a different manner altogether. So I believe the change is not the difference between the systems you're going to move into, but the change is you, whether your attitude is changing, there are more people in this country who have lived and succeeded and made this country who have adapted and, and, and made it grow. If you're going to run away you're going to t- you're going to pack the same bag with your same values, with your same you know your same outerwear, your same inner underwear, you're going to take these things, and if you don't change. You're just migrating a problem, and then you're going to hide behind that facade. So I, I believe it is you. It is you changing and you adapting. Paul, um, sorry, Paul, can I interrupt
3: you and ask you because we sure. were talking about the Rukun Negara of the of the five Rukun Negara or even the preamble. What is it that you like?
1: Um,
2: <laughs> I would. I like number one. All right and can you believe tell us mm-hmm. uh, belief in god isn't it right, right? yes
1: yeah yes i i like number 1 and I, i'm i'm not worried about what perception of god or what understanding of god i like number 1 because i i would i love to work with people and live with people who have a belief system a genuine belief system they stand up for it and they fight for it i'm not talking about extremism nothing i mean if you don't believe in, in a specific, specified religion you have a belief system and if if you if i don't believe in ghosts but you tell me you believe in ghosts i believe you i believe you for your beliefs and i respect those beliefs and this is that has come up many many times but uh, uh, believing in some, believing that there is a, an extra power or extra natural, you know, tendency to move things, it, I think that's far more important than the others, which are human design, of human design.
2: Paul, thank you so much for calling. Um, so actually, I mean, so many things to unpack there. Uh, but that notion of um, if you want change, then you also have to embody the values that you want to see changing is such an important one to take away. Yeah, it's true. Um, I
3: think that's that. There are, I think there's also legitimate concerns that, uh, and we talked about this earlier, that if the principles of the nagara uh, inclusivity, fairness in the distribution of the wealth of this country if that was taken to the heart of the administration, to the heart of government uh, in its in the course of its work, then
2: maybe we would
3: have a better society. And that can be worked on in
2: very practical ways. We do have a, another voice note. This is from KJ.
6: Yeah, I'd like to, instead of talking about, hey, it's meaningful now, I'd like to put in a, a suggestion here, which is how can we promote that better? I do believe in a phrase saying outside, out of mind. If you believe um seeing things and keep reminding yourself and that, that's by the nature of human being right if you have a chance to visit to China in all the halls the big halls, event halls that you see there are phrases, slogans everything to remind the people to love the country, to work hard to keep their integrity high if we were so suggestion is if we were to put forward a simple rule that hey, if there is there any gathering or any events is happening, uh, it's like 50 people or above, you gotta sing Nagarugu and of course to display the Rukun Nagara Ngar- and uh, in the event or you read it out uh, in some form right so that it's constantly sending reminders to the people that will make a difference i believe thank you
2: kj thank you for that so Okay, I have mixed responses. On the one (laughs) hand, I will admit that certain events, the standing up and the playing of the Nagara coup, has often made me feel sort of very, um, you know, that sort of warm feeling inside and a feeling of solidarity. Goosebumps. Uh, Yes, definitely. Um, um, Our national anthem actually is very goosebump inducing. Uh, But I'm often quite resistant to this sort of weird, imposed idea of patriotism, you know, like making people play things at events, making um, making it a rule that before particular sort of events you have to have, whether the Rukunegara or whether the anthem, I mean, not in school where perhaps it's it's done in a different way, um, but particularly for public events, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm on the fence about this idea.
3: Okay, so you know, when I was in university, my professor, one of my professors of sociology uh, sort wrote a piece uh, stating that there was a propensity among some Asian societies to believe that this overt exhortation to something, uh, you know, to higher values, that this was in fact real and that, you know, this would uh, mobilize people and so on. And I think maybe in the short term it, it could be used, and the Chinese example is interesting, but uh, I think a lot, of, um, a lot of caution needs to be used in thinking about China's example. Think of the Cultural Revolution and what happened then. Uh, as a cautionary to, uh, no, uh, 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 lesson on the use of uh, propaganda. But I, I think there's also different ways to build community and a sense of values. And there might to be debate. That open debate might in fact yeah, be a about much more, the Nagara, About instance. the yeah. That would much be a, a much more efficacious way of instilling those values. We
2: have another voice note that's come in. This is from Saiful.
0: For me... Anyway, Selamat Hari Merdeka. For me in my humble opinion, I love number 5, kesopanan dan kesusilaan. Because that is the end result when you have number 1, number 2, number 3 and number 4 together. With that, we have order and from there we have the what we call the culture of Asian. We are among ourselves, we have sopan, we empathy with each other, we being uh, should be Respect, respect of each other, and on top of that, we have harmony on that part. And I love it when that happened. And actually, in ground, in the ground, that does happen because among each other for us, as a Malaysian, we do respect each other' belief and do we do respect each other' race. The only bigotry that happen right now is politics. That's the real problem. And kesopanan and kesusahan is really. The pinnacle of any culture or any country or any um, what we call peradaban or civilization. Civilization is based on civil, peradaban based on adab, and it is come up through the kesopanan dan kesusahan.
2: Saiful, uh, Selamat Hari Merdeka to you too. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, that also is my favourite uh, principle from the Rukun And you know, I was curious enough to look it up because um, Kasupanan, I suppose, speaks for itself. Uh, courtesy, perhaps, or, you know. Uh, but Kasusilaan, however, we earlier said morality, but some translations use ethical instead. And I think actually more than morality, I like thinking about it as ethical behaviour. Um, and I agree. I think that that is a great way to Engage um, what we want to aspire towards.
3: And in fact, you know, feel so you're absolutely right that where we see bigotry, in fact, where we see the failure to put in place uh, the fifth Rukun is in politics. And we see with uh, the rise of certain populist figures that their popularity is often based on the transgression of this particular Rukun.
2: That is unfortunately all the time we have for today. Uh, but Selamat Hari Merdeka. In the meantime, stay tuned. BFM 89.9.
0: You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.